Hi, I'm Lewis, and welcome to Searching for It. I was planning for the next episode of this podcast to be on the philosophy of time travel, but due to some really exciting developments, this episode is going to be pushed back just a little bit. Instead, I'm delighted to welcome the Australian philosopher Peter Singer to the podcast. Peter is the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University and a Laureate Professor in Philosophy at the University of Melbourne. Peter is best known for his work on global poverty and the treatment of animals, and is credited with creating the modern animal rights movement and kick-starting the development of effective altruism. He has written, co-authored, edited and co-edited more than 50 books and has founded The Life You Can Save, an organisation that encourages people to give more money to help the global poor and guides people to find charities where their money will go the furthest. We talked quite a bit about Peter's philosophy in the two-part series on altruism earlier on in this podcast, particularly in episode 8, but if you haven't already given those episodes a listen, don't worry, you don't need to have listened to it in order to understand what's going on in this episode. But without any further ado, let's begin today's episode. So Peter, welcome to Searching for It. Happy to be with you. Good to have you here. So do you want to begin by just talking about what kind of work research you've been getting up to recently, you know, particularly since the COVID outbreak and, and lockdown? Yes. Uh, well, I've been doing a lot of different things. I don't know where, to what extent you'd call them uh, research. Uh, Penguin has a series of books called Great Ideas, and they asked me to collect some of my essays um, relating to animal liberation and uh, what we ought to eat. So I did that and they've, there's now a book coming out with, with Penguin actually in where, where you are in the UK and I think generally speaking in the former Commonwealth or Commonwealth countries, um, but with Norton in the US, uh, which will be called Why Vegan? Um, and that's gonna come out in October. And uh, the other thing I've been doing also with Norton, uh, a few years ago, somebody sent me uh, a book called The Golden Ass. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's actually uh, one of the earliest surviving novels. Um, it's it's uh, Roman. It's from the second century AD, written by a writer called Apuleius. And it's about the story of somebody who gets transformed into an ass or a donkey uh, and what happens to him. And it's uh, it struck me as being both you know very funny somewhat bawdy kind of humour, uh, but also showing a remarkable empathy for the sufferings of the donkey. But in reading it, uh, it kept getting interrupted by little stories that the donkey overhears and then retells. And you know, scholars think that these, it's wonderful that Apuleius recorded these stories. I find that they just interrupt the, the flow of the narrative, which is otherwise um, a relatively short sort of little adventure story. And so I had the idea of producing an abridgment which would get rid of the digressions, as I call them, um, embedded tales, as the Apuleius scholars call them, uh, and uh, also write an afterward it, sort of talking about where it, where it is placed historically and uh, in terms of attitudes to animals. So uh, um, Norton agreed to publish that, and uh, that's something else that I've been working on, um, writing the afterward. Uh, we have a new translation by an uh, Apuleius scholar called Ellen Finkelpel, 
and uh, we've also got some wonderful illustrations by a pair of Russian sisters. Um, so that's coming out in the spring, in the northern spring. Um, but that's been fun to work on. Oh, fantastic. I, I saw that that was um, yeah, coming out in the next year or so, actually. And I guess the idea behind that is to try to get people to recalibrate their attitudes towards animals. Yes, in part. I mean, in part, I think it's just, you know, it's it's a neglected story. You know, when people ask you, sort of say, you know, what's the first novel? In fact, I tried Googling this, right? So what, what was the first novel ever written? The thing that came up mostly was uh, The Tale of Genji by uh, Lady Murasaki, which is about, a, I think, 11th or 12th century uh, Japanese uh, court sort of story. So this was written uh, 900 years earlier um, and doesn't get mentioned, but it's clearly a novel. So it's uh, that struck me as, as strange that it's not well known. And then, of course, yes, the fact that it's, uh, I think, a, a vehicle for getting people to think about animals. And uh, I talk a little bit about how the Romans treated animals and, and how we treat animals today. And the comparison is not always in favour of today, I have to say. So uh, um, I, that's, that's, that's an opportunity, hopefully, to attract uh, new readers who will pick it up because they want a bit of fun, basically, um, in terms of the story or because they're curious about a second century AD novel. And uh, hopefully they'll start thinking about animals too. No, well, I, hope, I do hope so. And I must say, I did see recently, actually, while um, you know, doing my rounds on the philosophy blogs online, that uh, that's not the only thing you've been working on as well, it, to try and encourage people to recalibrate their views on certain things. I saw you actually won a competition recently on uh, the uh, blog that was asking entrants to come up with the best argument that they can to persuade people to give money to effective charities. Um, so do you want to kind of talk through that competition that you entered and the argument that you gave that won? Yes, um, I, I'm happy to do that. But let me uh, just correct you on one thing. Uh, there were two of us who entered this yeah. little story. Uh, Matthew Lindauer, who's uh, somebody I've known for a few years and who is uh, also a philosopher um, now at Brooklyn College in uh, New York, but uh, somebody who is um, interested in experimental philosophy, in uh, basically bridging the gap between experiments, sometimes in psychology uh, and philosophy. Uh, and one of the things that he's been interested in for, uh, this was how we first connected uh, many years ago, um, is in testing the argument that I used in famine, affluence and morality about uh, the drowning child in the shallow pond. So the argument basically says, uh, we all think that it would be awful to just walk past a drowning child in a pond when you could easily rescue the child at no risk to yourself, um, just because you didn't want to ruin your expensive clothes. And yet, if we think that would be awful, uh, how is it that we don't think that it's wrong to buy expensive clothes when we know that the money you spend on them could be used to save the lives of children, not children in a pond in front of you, but children in low-income countries maybe who don't have a bed net to sleep under and therefore get bitten by malaria carrying mosquitoes and die from malaria. So um, Matthew was, was interested in testing that, seeing how well it worked compared to other sorts of arguments. And uh, some years ago, we decided to try to see whether that argument appealed to particular kinds of people um, and how it compared with more emotional arguments for giving, uh, kinds of arguments that show you a picture of a small child and tell you a little bit about the child and then say, you can help her. So we start, we, we um, set up an experiment to try to test that. And 
we've got a paper actually just published in a journal called Judgment and Decision Making about that. And then Eric Schwitzgabel, um, who I've been doing some other uh, work with, came along with the idea of um, trying to find an argument that would do better than uh, a control, basically, than no argument at all in eliciting donations for people. And he was somewhat skeptical uh, that, that, that you could do this. You know, initially, Eric made his name on skepticism about whether philosophy actually leads anybody to act better. Uh, and he did some research sort of looking at the moral or not so moral behavior of, of philosophers and found that the philosophers who specialized in ethics didn't do any better than uh, philosophers who didn't, who did metaphysics, nor for that matter, did they do better than other professors in other disciplines. Um, so uh, he set up this challenge. And as Matt and I were working on this very sort of area, we um, decided to enter it. And we entered a couple of arguments, actually, but the one that won was uh, one about uh, overcoming blindness or preventing blindness, um, which which is something that can be done very cheaply. And uh, there's a funny little story about that, which is not, um, I don't think, in sort of the statement about the competition. But uh, some years ago, I can't remember exactly in the context now, I was talking to Derek Parfitt about... Um, arguments and arguments for saving children's lives and he said something like i think you should try arguments for improving the quality of people's lives for reducing their suffering um because to me this is what parfit was saying to me anyway that's more powerful than saving a life and I thought, oh, okay well I greatly admire parfit and uh, one of the perhaps the greatest uh, philosopher that i've been able to, to know personally and so in entering this, as we as the competition rules gave us the opportunity to enter more than one argument, um, I thought, let's try one about saving life and one about uh, preventing blindness, which is pretty, you know, say well-established way of making people's lives better uh, at low cost. Uh, and that's the one that, that actually won. And I was very pleased, I have to say, that uh, a, a philosophical argument, if you know, of a kind that I guess I've been making throughout my life actually did prove to have um, more success in eliciting donations from people than um, no argument at all, just the, the control group. And and even although by a narrow margin, uh, more success than, than other arguments that other people have put up. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's particularly interesting that the um, argument that you gave from blindness, so the idea, I think the idea that you basically put forward there is pointing out just how cheap it is to prevent blindness in the third world. And you made a comparison between, you know, you would you would pay $25 to save your own child uh, from going blind. Why would you not put that $25 to save a child in the third world from going blind? Well, well, yeah, I, I think we said something like, you know, if you had the, the means, obviously, you would pay $25,000 or $250,000 to prevent your own child going blind if that was necessary. Um, and yet we can prevent people going blind for $25 or somewhere thereabouts. Exactly. But why do you think it is then that people responded better to that argument that framed it in terms of preventing blindness than uh, the other argument you put forward that framed it in terms of saving lives? I'm, I'm not sure exactly um, why that is. Uh, some people do say when we talk, when we talk about saving lives, um, some people say, well, how do you know that that child's life is going to go well anyway, right? This, this is some child in a 
you know, obviously a poor family who can't afford bed nets or isn't well enough educated to understand why bed nets are important in a malaria prone region. Um, you know, maybe that child's going to have a miserable life anyway. Maybe it would have been better if the child died when very young. This is not my view, but I have had people say that to me. So the difference, perhaps the difference between whether the child lives or dies, uh, if you're talking about a child that starts out with not the best prospects anyway in life, as compared with someone who is going to be living, um, but is going to be living with blindness, as against somebody who can be living with sight, um, maybe that somehow is a more straightforward benefit to them. You know, there's more, more that they can say about that and, and like, you know, you don't have the objection, well, maybe the life will go, you know, you, life could go worse because you can see, but it's actually pretty unlikely that like, your life isn't going to go better because you can see. I mean, that sounds like quite an interesting insight, actually. I haven't heard that kind of thought before, that arguments could be more persuasive when they're framed in terms of improving people's lives in that way than in terms of actually saving lives in the third world. It's probably another area of research that we need to do more testing on, yeah. Yeah, no, it yeah, definitely brings that up. But moving on from that slightly, what I do quite like about the argument that you gave there, and also the drowning child example that you gave earlier, um, is that they have appeal in so far as they seem to be right, but they also have appeal in in terms of this emotional appeal, um, this emotional pull, where you're kind of forced to empathise with the child in the third world by making the comparison between the child on your doorstep or your own child. But what would you say then to the people who just don't feel the emotive pull of your arguments and to those who just don't care about acting morally and, and helping people and who don't care about saving the child with trachoma? Is there anything you'd say to those people to convince them that they should act morally in the first place? You know, why be moral? Well, firstly, I, I, I don't think there's anything that you can say that will persuade everybody to think and act ethically. Um, I think there are people who are just not going to be able to reach. So the issue for me is how can you reach more people rather than fewer people? And that's exactly what Eric Schwitzgabel's uh, competition was about. So I was uh, you know, happy to be part of it for that reason. I think it was doing something interesting and important. What can you say to reach more people? Well, some of them certainly, you know, it is doing this kind of universalizing thing that is thinking about your own yourself or your own child and thinking about strangers and the children of strangers. And that's an important kind of ethical argument. Um, when I was a graduate student in Oxford, uh, I was taught by R.M. Hare, who famously uses this idea of universalizability to say that that's a, what, a necessary condition of making a moral judgment, that you're prepared to put yourself in the place of others. So in a sense, that's, that's what I was doing. So that's certainly one thing that you can say, um, but I think you can also say that you're likely to live a better life in, for yourself in your own terms if you do think about others and uh, think about acting ethically. Not necessarily the point of being a saint. I'm not saying that um, you have to be altruistic in everything you do. I think that's pretty unrealistic, but um, that... Being concerned for others, um, acting generously, thinking about others, uh, and essentially acting in accordance with your values. Um, and I, by that, I don't mean obviously purely self-interested values, but the kinds of values that when you think about you, you do accept that others can't, that others matter. Um, I think that is contributes to having a more fulfilling 
and rewarding life, a life that people find more satisfying, you could say more meaningful if you like, uh, and uh, takes people out of a kind of a, a narrow egoism, which may seem attractive at first sight, but actually starts to pall fairly quickly. Uh, and I think there's quite a lot of, of psychological research now that supports this view, um, supports the view that people who are generous uh, are more satisfied with their lives and that the causation flows, at least in part, from the generosity, from the acting ethically to the more satisfaction with life uh, rather than the other way around. Have you found that that's something that's affected your own life and that you've actually experienced that in terms of the more altruism that you do, the more you do to help others, the more kind of life satisfaction you feel? Uh, yes, I think that's, I can say that. Um, I, and I feel that in my, in my own life, I feel good about what I'm doing. Um, and I also, through being in actually two somewhat uh, separate movements that I regard as altruistic, those both the animal movement, uh, animal protection movement, and uh, the effective altruist movement, which of course includes people who are concerned about animals, but also includes a lot of people who are concerned about uh, global poverty, for example. And I've been particularly involved in that side of effective altruism. Um, in both these areas, I've, I've felt that people are, um, get a lot out of the work that they're doing, that that makes a difference to them, that makes their lives um, more meaningful. So yeah, I, I, I do feel that that applies in uh, my own case and in the case of many people I know. It's only, that's only anecdotal, I suppose. It's not uh, uh, something that I have statistical validity for, but it's, a, it's an impression that I have. No, for sure. And I'm personally all for the idea that I think we should, we should, in moral terms, be doing a lot more to help others. And also that there's good self-interested reasons to do so as well. But would you have anything to say to, I guess, those people who um, talk about particularly giving money to charity? And they say, I think there are a group of people who say that it's better when done privately and that you don't deserve as much praise, you know, if it's uh, put on the pl public platform. Because obviously part of your work, you know, particularly around the life you can save, it's about the idea of trying to convince other people to give as much as they can. And people often publicly pledge that. Do you think there's something to be said for giving publicly, as it were, as opposed to privately? There's definitely something to be said for it. And, and that is that there's, again, a good evidence that uh, people are more likely to give if they know that others are giving. Uh, we're very much influenced by what others do. Um, that's been shown quite clearly, again, in, in psychological research that shows that, for example, people who've just witnessed somebody helping a person in need, if they then come across someone else who needs help, they're more likely to, to help that person than if they haven't um, recently seen somebody else helping somebody. Um, uh, so yeah, I think, I think we know that it does work that way, that uh, the more people know that others are giving, the more likely they are to give themselves. It creates this kind of group, uh, group effect. Uh, and conversely, if they know that others are not helping, they're less likely to help. So that's a powerful reason for saying we should be public about uh, giving. Um, I do understand the opposite reason that says, you know, this looks like you're boasting or you're only doing it because your, your reputation will improve. 
and I understand therefore if people are reticent about giving publicly, but I still think that we should try to encourage an ethos in which people do give publicly because that's going to lead to more being given. Yeah, and uh, to me, it seems important to be having these kinds of conversations for that reason. And I feel that's kind of part of your role is what the way that your career has gone as a philosopher in terms of influencing people and encouraging people to do a lot more good with their lives than they otherwise would have done. But have you ever, in your career as a philosopher, come across a philosophical argument or been otherwise persuaded by somebody else to kind of reshape your own views in one way or another or reconsider views that you once held and have now changed? Oh, absolutely. And uh, the, the, the obvious example for me to give here is um, my views about animals. Uh, when I went to Oxford as a graduate student coming from Australia, uh, I had never thought seriously about the place of animals in morality. Uh, I was eating meat twice a day anyway, and uh, not giving it much thought. Um, wasn't that I thought cruelty to animals was fine. Obviously, I th- did think if, if I'd seen somebody beating a dog with a stick or starving a horse, I would have thought that was bad. But I never really questioned where my food was coming from. And uh, this probably seems pretty strange to, to you and to other people of your generation, because it's pretty hard to grow up nowadays without questioning that. But um, I think I had literally never talked to a vegetarian, um, never really met a vegetarian. Um, Till I was, you know, 24 years old. Um, now possibly, I'd I'd encountered some uh, Indians who were vegetarian Hindus, you know, but you know th- that was not going to appeal to me um, as a reason for not not eating meat. So uh, meeting uh, Richard Keshen, who was a Canadian graduate student in philosophy, um, and finding out because we were having lunch together that he was a, not eating meat. Uh, and asking him why he wasn't eating meat and not being given some kind of religious answer nor even a kind of absolutist, uh, you know, thou shalt not kill uh, applied to animals as well as humans, but rather simply saying, well, um, I don't think it's right to treat animals in the way that animal was treated before it ended up on your plate. Uh, and that, of course, led me to ask more questions about, well, how was this animal treated? You know, didn't it have a nice life out grazing out in the fields until it got killed? Um, I also knew nothing about factory farming. Nobody talked about factory farming. It wasn't a, uh, something that had any publicity. Uh, yeah, that dramatically changed my life um, in terms of uh, everything I've eaten. Well, since that, I wouldn't say I, I didn't become a vegetarian at that particular lunch, but I did within... You know, I started thinking about it and within maybe a month, uh, I was a vegetarian. Um, and that certainly changed my life, uh, not only in what I um, stopped eating and in terms of writing animal liberation and working with various groups for animal protection, but also in, in making me think about uh, other things that I was doing in my daily life that um, maybe needed to be questioned Uh, more so it was a pivotal moment uh, in my ethical development I would say. Do you remember what exactly it was that that other graduate student said? Well something like uh, as I just said that is that uh, he didn't think it was right to treat animals the way that uh, animals were being treated to be turned into food and as I said I, I knew nothing about factory farming he did know that Many of the animals that we eat uh, were not grazing outside on the fields, but uh, were locked up inside all, 
for you know all of their lives uh and that wasn't something that i knew about and i uh there'd been one book written about this book by ruth harrison called animal machines and she uh so i got hold of that book and read that um Richard introduced me to a couple of uh, his friends who were uh, vegetarians, um, who uh, I think he'd become a vegetarian after meeting one of them. Uh, so yeah, I then developed a little group of vegetarian friends in, in Oxford. Uh, it was all of the, all of those things uh, came together. Yeah. Well, I think it's remarkable to think, as you said, that, you know, prior going to Oxford then, when you were living in Australia, you hadn't met anybody who was, who was a vegetarian. It's remarkable to think how, I guess, quickly the attitudes have changed. Um, and I think it raises the question when you think back to previous generations, um, ways in which they acted that we now understand are, are very wrong. If you take aspects of colonialism, slavery, etc., and views have, views have shifted over just a few generations. Do you think, other than um, the way that we treat animals today, there are any ways in which we might be acting as a society that future generations will look back at us and think we've acted monstrously? Uh, well, I, I do think animals is, is a major example. Um, Nicholas Kristof, who writes the uh, excellent column for the New York Times, actually wrote about that just just this week um, and used a quote from me uh, about that. Um, the other thing, well, two other things that I'll mention, and Kristof mentions them both, so your uh, listeners, viewers might want to look up his column in the Times. Um, so one of them is the fact that, you know, what we were talking about before, the fact that uh, we could be doing much more to help people in extreme poverty elsewhere in the world. Uh, and we're not doing that, although you know, basically we're spending money on luxuries uh, rather than helping people where we could cure their blindness or save their children's lives or other things. Uh, but the, the other big one, of course, is climate change. And I think future generations are really going to curse us for our failure to take this seriously and act on it uh, because they're going to be living in uh, a world that is more difficult to live in than we are now. They'll be coping with uh, avoidable problems that we didn't avoid. Uh, so I think that's clearly going to be seen as a major moral blind spot. Yeah, well, hopefully not. If uh, if things do develop at a faster pace than it looks like they're ever likely to. Uh, but with these kinds of arguments that, you've, that you give in terms of um, the way that we should treat animals, uh, our obligations to the global poor, also our obligations to future generations in the context of climate change. I think there's an obvious kind of provocative side of your work. And I think you've reached conclusions that have upset a lot of people because of the demands that, the demands that you place on those people. While also some of your other uh, arguments as well, such as those about uh, the euthanasia of infants. And these things have upset a lot of people. You had an event earlier in New Zealand cancelled this year. Have you found this kind of cancel culture, this backlash to some of your arguments has uh, stifled your expression of your philosophical arguments in any way? Or do you think it's just given you more of a platform on which to express those opinions? I think, in fact, it's made my work better known, uh, which is a kind of nice irony, really. Uh, the, the, the most obvious documentable example of this is that the first time that I was what would now be called deplatformed, although that word wasn't around then, uh, was in 1989 in Germany when I was invited to speak at a conference organized by the parents of children with disabilities to discuss my views on this and to debate them with people who had different views. Um, but uh, the protests from the sort of more 
hardline wing of the disability movement forced the cancellation of the entire conference. And when I was then invited to speak at a university by a professor interested in this and uh, the threats of protest led the rector to cancel that invitation too. But the, the uh, effect of this was that my views, instead of being presented to a conference of a few hundred people or to a university audience, um, were uh, sort of front page news in a lot of German newspapers. And I had the opportunity to say what my views were. So they became much better known. And uh, you can also see the sales of my book, Practical Ethics, which had been translated into German about five years previous to this. And it was quotes from the German translation of Practical Ethics that taken rather out of context that um, led you know, the protest movements against me. So uh, that book had sold virtually no copies, basically. I mean, it was around, obviously. So it had sold a, a few hundred copies, I guess, in the five years before 1989. And after 1989, all this, all this publicity, it sold thousands of copies every year for the next few years um, and has continued to be in print in Germany and uh, the revised editions have been retranslated. So um, there are a lot more German speakers who have been exposed to my views because of the protests than I think would have happened if the protests had never occurred. That's a nice irony. Yeah. Um, so those German protesters in uh, 1989, what do you think, well, what was the problem that they had with your arguments? And do you sympathise at all with any of their concerns? Well, of course, I, 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 I sympathise with, with the basic motivation, which I, I think 1989, of course, we're talking about a, a different generation now. This was the generation that, whose parents had committed the atrocities of the Holocaust. And I think they felt a real need to try to um, show that they were opposed to that and that they were opposed to anything like that. And um, I think that they made a big mistake in identifying my views as in some way akin to what the Nazis did because the, the Nazis had a so-called euthanasia program, which basically uh, murdered people with disabilities, um, people who they regarded as useless mouths or as a blot on the Aryan folk. Um, and there was no consultation with the parents. In fact, the deaths were hidden from the parents. Um, often these were people in institutions or the fact that the deaths were actually, that the children were, were killed was, was hidden from the parents. Uh, whereas, you know, what I'm suggesting is that, uh, and, and as I say, it was done by the state. Uh, what I'm suggesting is that parents should have choices when, when they have a child born with a severe disability, just as they do have choices if the doctor needs to do something to save the child's life, you know, the doctor has to come to them to get their consent to an operation that might save a child's life. Um, uh, and and sometimes the doctors will even say, you don't have to consent to this. And if you think it's better that your child would die, I understand that view and it's a reasonable view and we won't put the child on a on a ventilator. Uh, and that happens relatively frequently with severely with the most severely disabled children. But, but if the child doesn't need a ventilator, then the parents didn't get any choice. And my view was that, well, whether the child needs a ventilator or not is irrelevant to the assessment of how good the child's life is likely to be and whether the parents think they're capable of bringing up a child and giving a good life to that child. So I thought that where a child is born with severe disabilities, parents should have the choice of ending the child's life um, if that's 
what they think is best for the child, best for themselves and their family. So I think that these are really completely different kinds of motivations, even if you know both of them might lead to some people with disabilities being killed, but that's that's all the connection is. Um, so I think it was a mistake to think that my views had anything to do with Nazi ideology. And in fact, I have a Jewish background and three of my four grandparents were murdered by the Nazis in the Holocaust. Um, so I think I'm about the last person who would you know, come from the far right and support Nazi kinds of ideologies. Um, but a lot of people who were protesting didn't know this at all. They had no idea about what my background was. And a lot of them assumed that I was a kind of far right neo-Nazi. Um, it was quite bizarre confronting some of these people with their uh, misconceptions about my views. Yeah, I, mean, I think in terms of the um, the way that your your views are attacked, then without I guess looking look, looking fully into your background, I think mate, that kind of culture has only developed in recent years. You know, with this whole cult, cancel culture um, that's going on right now, I think you've done well to keep your own arguments in the public consciousness, despite the best efforts of your critics. Um, but those who are, as I say, cancelled today, it becomes very difficult for them to have a voice in the, in the public consciousness and to defend themselves. Obviously, this happens when people are, have expressed views that either everyone or a small subset of the population take to be abhorrent. Do you have any thoughts on the direction in which this kind of cancel culture is going, whether or not it's damaging to, uh, to the, I guess, freedom of speech in some respect? Or, or is it good to be deplatforming people who have expressed particularly abhorrent views? Uh, I think that on the whole, it's it's damaging. Um, I'm generally a defender of uh, old-fashioned liberal freedom of expression views uh, put forward, for example, by John Stuart Mill in his classic essay on liberty. I believe in the fullest possible freedom of thought and discussion and expression. And I think that even where we're confident that our views are right, we should allow them to be challenged uh, because that's a way of keeping the views alive rather than just a sort of a dogma um, uh, if they're challenged and if we show why we hold them and why we think they're justified that's um, much better than preventing people from putting forward arguments and I think that's what you know when people put forward views that you think are wrong or even obnoxious I think what you should do is allow them to speak but ensure that there's uh, uh, opposing views are also put um, so that there's a proper debate so that people can see which side of the debate has better arguments. Uh, and I think that's that's an important part of a free society and it's certainly an important part of a university education. So I think it's particularly unfortunate when um, people uh, who want to put a view um, are denied a platform. Now, I should say, um, I'm not an absolutist about this, right? I, I support uh, laws that um, we have in Australia, and I believe you have in the United Kingdom, um, about racial vilification. Um, and I see the difference between racial vilification, um, and it wouldn't just have to be in race, it could be you know, homophobic vilification or something of that sort. Um, I see the difference as vilification isn't really trying to put forward arguments and evidence for a viewpoint. It's trying to stir up hatred against people and hatred is an emotion it's not a uh, something that people come to as a result of looking at evidence and arguments so um i think that's how you draw that distinction is somebody trying to stir up hatred against a particular group um it's reasonable not only to 
not offer those people a platform, but in uh, the most serious cases to, to use the criminal law to stop them doing that. Um, but uh, uh, where people are putting forward views that are unpopular, but nevertheless, that they're trying to make a case um, with, uh, with evidence and arguments for that case, then I think the appropriate thing is, if you think they're wrong, to try to show why they're wrong. And on what basis would that not apply to those um, who are committing hate speech, for example, to those who are trying to stir up racial vilification? In what sense? Uh, why is it that you wouldn't also defend their um, the right for them to say that and also the right to others to reply and show why that kind of speech is wrong, why it's damaging, why they shouldn't be saying that in the first place? Well, I, because I think um, uh, emotional speech doesn't present a case which you can refute. Um, we, we see from the, from the Nazi example, we see that there are deep-seated emotions in people which can be stirred up by agitators, basically, by, uh, particularly by racists. It seems that's the one that is most often stirred up, but certainly, uh, as I say, hatred against um, people who are not conforming to sexual uh, stereotypes or homosexual or um, may see it with trans people as, as well today. Um, is also something that can be emotionally stirred up. But I would, you know, I would draw distinctions between what you can say uh, in terms of, say, for example, you know, the debate, there's, there are some uh, feminists, uh, gender critical feminists, uh, who don't think that somebody becomes a woman just by uh, self-identifying as a woman. And uh, that's a different argument, you know. That that's I don't see that as stirring up hatred. I see that as making an argument to say, this is not a person who uh, we want to have in places that are generally considered women-only places. So, you know, I think that's something that could be discussed. I don't think um, people should be deplatformed for saying that. No, I, I, I certainly see the difference there. It sounds like the kind of justification you're giving then is it was almost a consequentialist or otherwise just a pragmatic justification then insofar as emotional speech, you're not going to be able to rationalise with it. So emotionally charged hate speech is just going to be damaging. That's right. And we've seen how dangerous it is. And, you know, we, as I say, we saw it in the Nazi case, but actually we're seeing it today when um, we have attacks on trans people. Um, and so... Yeah. Uh, you know, when people are just saying, you know, something horrible things about that and saying, you know, let's get them, let's teach them a lesson or whatever it is might be, you know, that's the kind of thing that you can legitimately stop because that's dangerous. Um, I see. And that's different from putting up arguments for what kind of laws we ought to have on, on, the, on who's, who's, uh, who's a man and who's a woman. Yeah. Well, I think we just got a minute or two left. So the final thing I just want to ask you today is um, I read online, actually, that back in 1994, you actually stood for office in Australia for the Green Party and uh, got, I think, about 30% of the vote in your area. So I just wanted to ask what it was that prompted you to stand for office and uh, how come you never ran since? Uh, actually, I did. I, oh. I stood twice. Oh, okay. um, but, uh, but to go back to the occasion that you mentioned, what prompted me was... Uh, Member, other members of the Australian Greens. I joined, uh, I was a founding member of the Australian Greens in, in the state of Victoria, where Melbourne is, where I was living. And uh, when the opportunity came to put up a candidate uh, at a by-election, they simply looked around, I think, for the most prominent member of the party in Victoria, and that was probably me at the time. Um, so they asked me to stand, and I thought, well, why not? It's, uh, you know, I obviously was not going to win. This was a very safe um, liberal, i.e. in Australian politics, that means conservative, um, seat. Uh, they'd held it for 
a very long time and there was no chance that the Greens were going to win. But uh, the idea of standing was to make the Greens better known as they were a new party. So um, I did stand and as you say, I got nearly 30% of the vote, which was for then and many years afterwards, the highest vote ever recorded by Greens at a federal Australian election. And because of that, I, they also persuaded me then to stand uh, at the next federal election um, for the Senate. And the Senate we elect from proportion, by proportional representation. So it wasn't completely impossible um, that I could win that. Um, it's proportional representation on a state basis, uh, with six senators elected from each state. So to be sure of winning, I would have needed 14% of the vote. And although I got 28% in this by-election, in a federal election, I was not likely to get anything like that. You know, in by-elections, you get these big protest votes. Uh, and in fact, I didn't. Um, but uh, so I had, I had those two experiences. And after that, I thought, okay, well, I've had my chance, you know, somebody else, some younger candidates in the Greens, there are lots of good good candidates um, should stand. So I bad out of active politics. And a few years later, I then went to Princeton anyway and been spending more time in the United States. So then it didn't really arise. I guess we won't be seeing you make a surprise campaign in the next election then. No, I have no plans <laughs> to do that. Well, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today, Peter. It's been a pleasure. Good. Good, Lewis. It's been good to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this month's episode. If you want to explore Peter Singer's philosophy in a bit more detail, you can listen to episodes eight and nine of Searching for It, and I've also posted some recommended reading to www.searchingforit.org. As planned, the next episode will be on the philosophy of time travel. You can keep up to date with this episode and all future episodes by following Searching for It on Facebook or Instagram. Or, if you've particularly enjoyed the podcast, you can find the show on www.patreon.com forward slash searching for it, where you can pledge a small monthly contribution in order to help keep the podcast running. Otherwise, thanks for listening to this month's episode of Searching for It. Thank you.